Good morning, Grace Fellowship. Good morning, Grace Fellowship. There we go. We're on. I was making sure the mic was on, but thank you for the response. Um, it's always amazing to me how our God orchestrates uh, the services. Our, our text today, we're dealing with the gospel going forth to the nations. So from the call to worship of the nations in Psalm 117 to um, the songs we've sang, right, about all creatures, um, man, it's good. So let's open our Bibles. Our text for today is going to be Acts 8, 26 through 40. If you'll turn there, Acts 8, 26 through 40. As you're turning in your Bibles, let's quickly recap what's happened so far in the books of, book of Acts so we know the context for today's passage. So our book opens with the resurrected Christ giving a summary statement about what he's about to do in verse 1-8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the followers of Christ are going to be what? Witnesses. They're going to testify to what they've seen, what they've heard. And they're going to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit in increasingly large circles as the gospel's going out from Jerusalem. The stoning of Stephen in chapter 7 begins to push the narrative outside of Jerusalem. With the Jewish institution now openly hostile towards the message of Christ, the believers are scattered. They had to go elsewhere. And Corey has taken us to Samaria for the past two weeks, where in chapter 8 we follow Philip's ministry to the Samaritans. Remember, these Samaritan half-breeds were from the the other ten tribes of Israel. They were the spiritual B-team, outsiders to the Jews, subjects of intense rivalry. But in keeping with Christ's statements on what he was about to do in Acts, the gospel went forth into Samaria, and in today's text, we're going to see it continue to spread to the ends of the earth. So let's start in verse 26 and read together. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. God, we know you are holy. 
that you are the supreme ruler, that you sit on your throne and you reign over all the earth. And when you declare that your word will go forth to the nations, to all places, there is nothing that can stop it. Father, we would seek to join in the mission of your word this morning. God, that you would transform us as we speak, as we hear. God, that your word would bear fruit, the fruit of repentance, the fruit of treasuring Christ, that you would give understanding that would leave from this place treasuring you more because of the word you've given us. God, we can ask this boldly. We can dare to come before a holy God because what we believe about what Christ has done and the righteousness he has given us. It's because of his righteousness we pray. Amen. So our text today continues to focus on Philip's ministry. We see in verse 26 an angel directing him south of Jerusalem to a road that leads to Gaza. This road goes on down to Egypt, northern Africa, vast lands, and a faraway continent. He rose and went. And then in verse 27, Philip encounters a very particular person, the Ethiopian eunuch. Now the narrative goes on to give us some very specific information about this individual. And we're going to take a little time here to unpack it because it's so relevant in how we understand the text. So look with me. This man was an Ethiopian. He belonged to a nation of people in northern Africa, and he would be considered a foreigner to the Jews in every way. From the deep black color of his skin to his features, his wardrobe, the sheer distance between his country and Jerusalem, he was a stranger, uncommon, very much unlike the typical person you would encounter on the streets of Jerusalem. This man was a eunuch. It was very common in those days for court officials and those who served female royalty to be physical eunuchs, for obvious reasons. However, although his state as a eunuch granted him a high position in the court of the queen, it was not viewed by broader society as an honorable status. Eunuch men were considered effeminate, and in the ancient world, they were a half-breed. They certainly weren't women, but they weren't really men either. Most put them into an entirely different category. And the title of eunuch would have been pejorative in many circles, right? You could imagine the Roman drill sergeant yelling at his soldiers in the Arlie Ermey voice, right? Come on, you soldiers, you fight like a bunch of eunuchs out there. It's not an honorable title. And this man was wealthy. If you look at your text, learn that the Ethiopian eunuch was not just an ordinary official, but charged with the treasury of the queen herself. There's no doubt he was paid very well, and the account includes details that point us to that truth. Verse 28 tells us he was traveling by chariot, very likely with an array of servants, and what's he doing? He's reading a scroll. Now, this isn't something he went and got from Amazon.com. He didn't pick up a used copy on the cheap from Second and Charles, right? Remember, in those days, scrolls were only copied by highly trained scribes, and nobody outside of the extremely wealthy, would ever have had a personal copy of one of these scrolls. And finally, in these verses, we see this man as a worshiper of God. So what did he do with this great wealth? Was he going to hit the best beaches of the Mediterranean? Collect some seashells? Snag some selfies for Instagram? Well, it was ancient times, so maybe it was MySpace. No. Verse 27 tells us, He had come to Jerusalem to do what? To worship. 
His belief in the God of the scriptures was not a casual accessory to his life. And he was willing to spend large amounts of his personal fortune, his personal capital with a queen to take leave of his duties of treasure and go be with the people of God in the temple of God. Now there's debate here over whether or not this man was a Jewish convert, right, known as a proselyte or a Gentile. And many view the upcoming account with Peter and Cornelius in chapter 10 as the formal recognition by the church uh, of a Gentile salvation, of being in conflict with this Ethiopian eunuch having a Gentile status. But the fact that he was a physical eunuch would have presented conflicts with the true Jewish proselyte status, and Luke never claims exclusivity with the upcoming account of Cornelius, only that the account of Cornelius is what brought recognition of the Gentile converts to the wider church. So even Luther and Calvin are at odds with one another in this one. I don't want to spend time on that this morning. Where I want to spend time is the important part about the nature of this man's worship. You see, because whether or not he was a Jewish convert in the form of a proselyte or a Gentile, his participation in Jewish temple worship would have been far off. You see, physical eunuchs were prohibited from entering the temple beyond the court of the Gentiles, the outermost court of the temple. I don't know about you, but most people haven't brushed up on their temple architecture, so, so let's talk about that for a minute. Here's how it worked. You had the innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies, represented the very dwelling of God's presence with his people. It was the most holy part. Only the great high priest was allowed to enter there, and even then, only once a year. Outside of that, you had the court of the priests where the Levites would come and offer sacrifices. Beyond that, the next court was the court of the Israelites, where Israelite men would come to worship. Beyond that, you had the court of the women, where the Israelite women would come. All of those together were walled off into what's called the inner court. Big walls in an elevated court that you had to climb upstairs to get to and enter through a gate with an armed guard. Only Israelites were allowed in this inner court. So it was a place where the Ethiopian eunuch had never been. His temple worship experience would have taken place outside this in the court of the Gentiles. So what do you imagine it was like for the eunuch to remain in this outermost court for temple worship? Imagine this. You're going to the biggest Iron Bowl game of the decade. Auburn and Alabama are ranked number one and number two, both undefeated all season long. The winners go into the SEC championship and the playoffs and who knows, maybe even the national championship. You've got tickets, And so you drive for hours through heavy traffic, finally find a parking spot, walk for miles to get to the stadium, and you're arriving just as they're about to kick off, and you're stopped at the gate. Sorry, bud. That ticket you purchased on the cheap is counterfeit. You have no seat. You have no place inside the stadium. So you look at the massive walls of this concrete structure, and you do your best to be a part of the game. You can hear the announcer's call of touchdown. You can see the scoreboard. You can hear the bands. You can even join in with the crowds as they sing, as they cheer. But the way you experience the game on the outside of that stadium is fundamentally different than how you experience the game sitting on the 50-yard line. This eunuch had been standing outside the walls his whole life. So what of this stranger, this foreigner, Why would Philip encounter him? Let's pick up the text with verse 30. 
where we have our first point. One gospel for all time. In verse 30, Philip ran and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, of course I do. I'm an important royal official. No. He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture he was reading was this. You'll recognize it as Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. From what scripture did Philip tell the eunuch? The good news about Jesus? Matthew, Mark, John. Now Luke was plugging his other book, right? He told it from Luke? No. Isaiah 53. When the early believers in the book of Acts reason about Christ from the scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament. In fact, the first account given in Luke's gospel after Christ has completed his work, after Christ has been raised from the dead, is Christ appearing to the two on the road to Emmaus. Remember, these two men were walking along this road, and they were talking, and they were trying to make sense of all that had just happened. Jesus had come, and they saw him do mighty works and teach with authority, like a prophet of old. He amassed a following, and then he was killed by Roman authorities and the Jews. Then, what happened? We have rumors that these women went to the tomb and said he was raised on the third day. What has happened? We can't make sense of it all. Jesus appeared to them in such a way they didn't recognize him by his appearance, and he joins in on the conversation. And what did Christ say about their confusion? Ah, no worries. You really couldn't have seen this coming. No. Jesus rebukes them for missing it. In Luke 24, 25, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses... It's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis. And all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, these things concerning himself. Jesus took the entirety of the Old Testament and demonstrated its purpose. It was about him. Listen, Grace Fellowship, if the Old Testament is a book of heroes for us to imitate, we've missed it. If the Old Testament is just a bunch of stories about how we do right and God will bless us, We missed it. And if our reading of the Old Testament doesn't offend Jews because of how Christ-centered it is, we've missed it. So here we are in verse 34 with our Ethiopian eunuch reading. Not only the Old Testament, but one of the most explicitly Christ-centered passages. The suffering servant who willingly lays down his life for his people. Who was it? The Ethiopian asks, He wants to know, what does it mean? Was it the prophet writing this? Is is this suffering servant to come? What will he look like? How will this suffering restore Israel? Does it mean a full restoration? Back to a just and prosperous kingdom like David's? Or, Or is the restoration under the care of a priest like Moses, who will intercede for his people? Or even back to an unfettered relationship 
with God like Adam and Eve had in the garden? Who is this servant I'm reading about? What does his coming mean? Man, talking about putting the ball on the tee for Philip. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and told him the good news. Not about how you've got heroes to imitate. He told him the good news about Jesus from Isaiah. That Christ is the suffering servant who willingly bore the sins of the many. The good news we have, church, is that Jesus is the final and true fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. He doesn't annul it. He doesn't start a different story. He brings the old one to completion. The same gospel, the same hope that's been given since the beginning. One gospel for all time. So it brings us to our second point. One gospel for all people. So we set the scene a lot, all right? Historical information about who this Ethiopian was, what his experience of worship would be like, and that's intentional. Why? Because here we are as the Ethiopian eunuch, a fervent, long-time worshiper of the God of, Bi- of the Bible, has come into contact with fulfillment of the gospel. Philip begins with Isaiah, but he doesn't end there. Philip's end is the resurrected Christ who is empowering and building the church through the Holy Spirit. Christ's kingdom has come. It's been inaugurated, and not as a physical land, but as a people who by faith have entered into the promise of God, the one God made a long time ago to Abraham. And the Ethiopian listens. I can imagine his wheels are turning as he starts to get it. All of his life, he's been outside, outside the walls, outside the gates of the inner court. His eunuch status placed him as the subject of ridicule, outside of the practice of circumcision. His whole religious life has been shaped by prohibitions. Parts of the temple he can't go to. Ceremonies in which he cannot participate. But as he hears the good news that salvation comes by faith alone in this Christ and through this Christ, it is fulfilled, it is finished. You can enter into the promise of Abraham. Listen to his question. In verse 36, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? What is there to stand in the way of my running to Christ and by faith in his work entering into the fullness of his presence? Nothing. What prevents me from being baptized? Nothing. What prevents me from receiving the Holy Spirit? Nothing. What national or ceremonial impurity will keep me far off and distant from the presence of God? Nothing. Do you see the beauty of the question? Why it's framed in these terms. Luke is answering not just the Ethiopian's question here but a much larger one. This question is aimed at identifying whether there's going to be divisions inside of the body of Christ. Will Jesus' church look like the temple with its various courts and divisions? You can come so far but not further? No. There are no courts in the body. We're left with just one division. Faith in Christ, and you are a full member of the body adopted into the promise of Abraham and able to enter into God's presence or no faith in Christ. That's the only division we're left with. 
Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Notice the completion. You've done what? Entered into the promise of Abraham. To our first point, it isn't a new story. It's the ending to the old one. One gospel for all time. Came to the Jews in Jerusalem first, as the scripture said it would. Two weeks ago, we saw it went to the Samaritans. How far will it go, Luke? Where does it end? What kind of people, what nations, what colors, what types of jobs, what dress, what kind of people will be saved by this? All of them. Because if they imagine the most distant and foreign and strange person they could, that's the Ethiopian eunuch. He gets the same gospel. He comes through faith. And by that faith, he shares Not in some second-rate promise, but in the promise of Abraham. One gospel for all people. Ah, it's beautiful. So we see the eunuch baptized in verse 38. His baptism a clear indication that Peter accepted his profession as genuine and considered the eunuch a believer in Christ. They come up out of the water and they're parted. Philip to continue preaching at Azotus and Caesarea and the eunuch to go proclaim the gospel among his home people of North Africa. So, we don't have any Ethiopian eunuchs in our midst. And it's very unlikely that any of us have ever been disallowed entry into a place of worship. So what do we do with this story? Here's my admonishment from the text, Grace Fellowship. Every time we would seek to put up a barrier from drawing near to Christ... We must remind ourselves that his work, as seen through all of scriptures, has removed every barrier from intimate fellowship with him. So draw near. It seems like a simple enough application, right? But what would be the opposite of drawing near? How might these idle factories we have of hearts mess this one up? I'll tell you how. When Christ removes barriers and divisions from fellowships with him, we would go and erect new ones ourselves. We would put up walls, we would section off intimate fellowship with Christ by putting up divisions that aren't in scripture. Let me illustrate. Suppose you're at work, and you're at your office, your workshop, your place of business, and you and a buddy are getting ready to go work out on your lunch break. And a fellow coworker, we'll call him Joe, overhears your conversation. Hey, y'all going to work out, Joe asks? Man. I love to work out. Just last week, I was repping like four plates, over 400 pounds on my deadlift. I heard not even John Mayfield can do that. Well then, you say, why don't you come join us over lunch? We just so happen to be doing heavy deadlift today. And Joe's countenance shrinks a little. Well, I would, but I've got that big meeting in 20 minutes. Uh, Sorry, uh, I guess I'm just going to show you guys how, how to deadlift another day. And you say, oh, the the big release planning meeting in 20 minutes? They moved it to tomorrow. Looks like your calendar just cleared up. Come join us. Joe shrinks a bit more. Well, 
it's good that my calendar's clear, but uh, I wore my nice pants today. So if I came home like with barbell scratches all over my nice slacks, my wife would not be happy about that. So sorry, I can't go. Oh, no worries, you say. I just so happen to have an extra pair of gym shorts in my car. Come with us. You can borrow whatever you want. Joe shrinks back yet again. Well, you know, now that I think about it, he says, my knee is still, uh, still kind of tweaked from all that heavy weight I was lifting last week. I mean, I definitely want to come lift with y'all, but, but I just don't think today is the right time. Better rest my knee a little bit first. Does Joe want to come lift? No. If he really wanted to come lift, he would have. What our hypothetical Joe wants to do is press the cause of his slothfulness or his reluctance outwards. He doesn't want to simply say, no, I like the volition. I like the want to, to go exercise with y'all. If Joe can erect a wall, a barrier that inhibits him from exercising, guess what? He's free to let himself off. He can convince himself that he really does love exercise and that he had the volition. He had the want to. It was the world around him that prevented him. If it wasn't for the pants, if it wasn't for the meeting, I'd be right there with you guys. You see where this is going. Our text today answers the question of what barriers exist that might prohibit me in any way from experiencing the fullness of Christ. And the answer is there are none. But how often do we live as if these barriers and walls, divisions, still exist? How often do we have the invitation to come to Christ and we look at him and we say, oh, no, I can't go. Look, there's this thing in the way. Unbeliever, man or woman here today who has never come to Christ, don't fall prey to this temptation. How often we've heard, well, I want to follow Christ, but I've got to clean my life up a little. I've got to deal with a few issues. My life needs to look a certain way first. Says who? Bring your issues, your ills, your sins to Christ by faith, and he will deal with them. It's like saying I've got to be wet enough to jump in the pool. No, you don't. Jump in the pool and you'll get wet. Come to Christ and repent of your sins and he will deal with those sins. Don't pretend there are barriers in your coming. Draw near. You might be sitting in your seat saying, I don't look like the people around me this morning. I don't dress like anyone else here does on Sundays. I don't talk like the people at church. My hobbies are different. My life is just different. I can assure you, this Ethiopian could have said every single one of those things. Not one stopped him. God gave us the story to show us that the gospel is for all kinds of people. There's not a certain way you have to look, a skin color, a nation, a dress that will prevent you from coming to Christ. So draw near. After drawing near, it's significant that the Ethiopian did not go back to Jerusalem. Philip could have encountered him at Jerusalem, but he encounters him where? On the road home. Because he's going to his people, his culture, his language, and his nation, now armed with the good news of Jesus. Because when faith in Christ is the only division, the church universal will be beautiful in her diversity of appearance and language and culture. So draw near, but bring your cultural distinctives. Don't seek to erase them. And take note of that, believer. Because I'm convinced that we often make snap decisions in our mind. We don't just put obstacles in our way. We might put obstacles in the way of others in our minds before we share the gospel. 
If you're inclined to share with a particular group of people more quickly than another, based on externals, even ones you might attribute to religious-sounding terms like readiness or openness, make sure you're not seeking to mask a division you've made, a court that you've built for your kind of people. No such division exists in Christ's kingdom. To make one of those divisions is to set up a kingdom of your own. Our false divisions can sometimes be very practical, subtle even. How many times have we heard something like, well, I'll just never know Christ as deeply as that person does because I'm not a reader. I don't comprehend well. I can't sit for a long time and read my Bible. Really? Do you know what you're saying when you're saying that? It's answering the question of what prevents me from drawing near to Christ with reading? Knowing, loving, treasuring, worshiping Christ is not synonymous with reading. Yes, it will involve his word. But listen to it, speak of it, sing of it, meditate on it, pray. Pray out loud, write prayers, pray with brothers and sisters. There are manifold ways to engage with our God and drink deeply of his person. Don't try to make some division and stay far off because you don't read well. Draw near. So that's my admonition for you today, church. Draw near. Every time you would seek to answer the question, what prevents me? What divisions exist that keep me from engaging in the fullness of the presence of God? Remember his work displayed through all scriptures. Man, an answer with Philip. There is nothing. Aaron's going to come. Lead us in response.